This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello and welcome to Saver, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an episode for you about sorghum syrup. Right. And there's a very specific reason for this one, correct? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, so Juneteenth, uh, newly a national holiday, is, is almost upon us. And so I was kind of, I was looking for um, a dish or a product that came to us thanks to Black people in America. And uh, sorghum and sorghum syrup are definitely within that purview. Yes, yes. Uh, and we're going to expand on that in the history section. Um, I I don't have too much experience with this, but it seems, based on what I read, I have a lot more than a lot of America does. Yeah, I'd say that I'd say that modernly um it's very much a uh like like southern Appalachian foodways kind of product um but uh but I see it I mean I I see it frequently on especially right especially like kind of like southern cuisine themed menus um and being in Atlanta we have many of those um mm-hmm. I think the most often that I see it as an ingredient is as a sorghum butter would like mm. sort of like a honey butter, like mm-hmm. served with a with a bread basket at at restaurants, which mm. is so good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, and oh, and I was thinking about it recently because uh, I went on a field trip um, with some coworkers to Sea Rock City, 
And yeah, and uh, uh, our our dear friend um, and uh, super producer Miranda Hawkins was like, oh, man, they've got sorghum butter. Can I just get some sorghum butter? Love sorghum butter all the time everywhere. So, <laughs> And then like once I was paying attention to it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is kind of everywhere. That's great. Yeah, I feel like I, bef- again, before the pandemic, because I really haven't gone out to restaurants too much uh, since then. But before mm-hmm. then, I feel like I saw it a lot on brunch menus. Um, sure. Yeah. And I just, I prefer savory almost every time over sweet. So that's why uh-huh. I say, like, I see it a lot. I just. <laughs> you don't usually, have a lot of experience with it. Right. And I do, yeah. like, when I've had it, it's good. But it, I'm just someone who's almost always going to get the savory option. Brunch option. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, brunch. I miss thee. Um. <laughs> so, uh, you could see our sugar episode episodes. Did we do two? We was, did two. It was a, kind of a two parter. Yeah. yeah. Um. I guess also our honey episode, kind yeah. of sort of for also a little two bit parter, right? For like the history of sweeteners in general. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. And this is gonna have to have another because right, right. We're we're focusing on sorghum syrup today. Sorghum as a grain is going to have to be a whole other episode. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but do do highly recommend listening to those sugar ones just because the story of these two topics are very intertwined. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. But I guess that brings us to our question. Yes. Sorghum syrup. What is it? Well... Uh, Sorghum syrup is a type of liquid sweetener made from the sorghum plant, uh, which is itself a type of cereal grain grass related to uh, to sugarcane and corn and millet. Um, It grows in tall stalks, and you can press the stalks to get get a thin juice and then cook that juice down to create a syrup. Um, It's deep red to, like, amber brown in color and, uh, and, and thick, like similar to molasses or, like, a very dark honey in appearance. The flavor is a little bit different, though. It's got this kind of, like, malty, rich, earthy flavor, um, but still has these, like, bright, grassy, spiced kind of notes. Uh, This is a little esoteric, but it reminds me of, like, a concentrated um, rum agricole or cachaça, um, which makes sense in a lot of ways. Uh, It's like, um, it's like, you know, when... The sun is rising on a cloudy day, and you get these incredibly solid-looking red rays coming through under the cloud line. It's like it's like if you could bottle that and put it on your biscuits. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful once again. You've painted quite a picture. Oh, uh, the palate so of my cravings. tongue. Yeah, cool. yeah. One of my one of my very serious cravings through this pandemic has been for fresh biscuits because I can make them at home, but gosh, it's better when someone else makes them for me. <laughs> yes, one hundred percent agree. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So, um, so sorghum, right? Uh, kind of a different episode, but briefly, um, it's it's a tropical to subtropical grass. Yeah, uh, it grows about a meter or three tall, like three to nine feet, sometimes taller, uh, with uh, with with thick fibrous stalks holding up these big sprays of tiny flowers, like up to six thousand flowers a stalk, um, each of which will produce a seed. Uh, 
humans have developed a bunch of different cultivars of of sorghum. Um, Some are grown for their seeds, which are uh, starchy grains used for everything you would use corn or wheat or rice for. Um, And some are grown for their stalks, which contain a lot of sugars, you know, ostensibly for those grains, but we like eating them too. Um, These varieties are called sweet sorghum and are used as animal feed and or pressed for their juice to make syrup. The syrup is cooked down, right, and then can be used as any other liquid sweetener would um, to make candy or to flavor baked goods and desserts or as a topping drizzled on anything you want to add some sweetness to. Uh, uh, it is often, right, made into made into sorghum butter in uh, the South and or Appalachia. And sorghum is a gluten-free grain, so it's gained popularity as the market for gluten-free products has grown. Um, it's a fairly common sweetener in the pharmaceutical industry as well, and is widely used as animal forage and for the production of ethanol biofuel um, and for its fibers to uh, to create uh, products like brooms and uh, other structural accents um, and to make alcoholic beverages like beer or vodka or uh, baiju, which is a Chinese liquor that I am really into right now. It is so good. It's so weird. Mm -hmm. I adore it. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I guess through all of this, I'm remembering our maple syrup episode would probably be a good. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our beet. Our beet and episode. Beet, and beets. And beets. And also rum agricole. Yeah. Oh, that. <laughs> I miss that all the time. Every now and then I'll just get a memory of tasting that in Hawaii and I'll be like, oh, transported. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what a what a beautiful. Oh, what what a beautiful everything that was. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, but what about the nutrition? Uh, okay, so sorghum syrup is a sweetener. And generally speaking, we should all limit the amount of, of sweeteners that we consume. Um, however, as a sweetener, sorghum syrup is relatively nu- nutrient-rich. Um, it contains like a little bit of protein and a really good smattering of minerals compared to other sugars. Um, it has less actual sugar content compared to other sweeteners. So, uh, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, speaking of, I meant to bring this up at the top, but the other day a friend and I got into a a friendly debate on how okay. to pronounce syrup, uh, whether it's syrup or syrup. Syrup. Huh. I think I say syrup. I don't syrup. know. Syrup. But Which one have I been saying? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't listen to myself. <laughs> I lo- we don't even know. We don't even know what's happening here. I'm sure as we continue, <laughs> things will come to light. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and actually, uh, sorghum is one of those things. I've definitely heard it pronounced um, sorghum. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm kind of like warring with myself about how to, yeah, it's cool. Okay. <laughs> Fun with pronunciation, always. Always, well, always. Listeners, let us know. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, we do have some numbers for you. We do. Uh, sorghum is one of the world's top five cereal crops. Uh, yeah, I think the top five in order, I think, are uh, rice, wheat, corn, barley, and then sorghum. Yeah, um, over 55 million tons of sorghum are produced every year. 
And as of 2019, the U.S. was the largest producer of sorghum, followed by Nigeria, India, and Mexico. In 2018, the U.S. produced 365 million bushels of sorghum. Um, And as of 2017, when about the same amount was being produced in the U.S., 81% of it was being grown in Texas and Kansas. A lot of educational documents out of those those states oh, yeah. about this, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, the, uh, the production uh, value of the United States crop as of 2021 was $2.5 billion. Wow. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And although it has, like, long been a staple crop in Africa and Asia, like, providing over 70% of daily caloric intake in some populations there, um, it has been a relatively late bloomer in the, in the U.S., um, but it's been growing in popularity. Some research showed an increase uh, of both grain and sweet sorghum together on restaurant menus from the years 2013 to 2017 of 265%. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. And that that was kind of like the midst of the um of the like southern cuisine boom. Oh um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, uh, it, it's it really is a fascinating history. Oh, it is, and it's a long history. So we've yeah. got a lot to get into. <laughs> uh huh. And we are going to get into that as soon as we get back from a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody, 
Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of Melon Leaf stem cell technology. It's Melon Leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, according to archaeological evidence uncovered near the Egyptian-Sudanese border, sorghum has existed in Africa since at least 8,000 BCE. Uh, Though some researchers believe it's even older than that. The first evidence we have of domesticated sorghum comes out of Sudan circa 3000 BCE, though there were probably more than one domestication events. Yeah, um, another domestication from around about the same time has been traced to what's now Ethiopia. Yeah, at uh, multiple instances. Yes. And because it grows well in arid climates, it most likely spread across Africa fairly quickly as nomadic humans migrated, uh, purposefully transporting and planting sorghum as they went. Uh, Wall paintings suggest sorghum was being grown in Egypt by 7th century BCE and was used as a food source for both people and perhaps specifically poorer people and also livestock. Evidence places sorghum in India by 4,000 BCE, where it was cultivated by around 2,000 BCE. Um, From there, sorghum eventually reached China, most likely distributed along trade routes, although one theory suggests that Genghis Khan introduced sorghum to China in the 1200s CE. Yeah, I know. Who knows? Uh, Other theories make the argument sorghum was present in that country by the 2nd century BCE. So that's a pretty big range. Yeah. Uh, Pliny wrote about sorghum in the 1st century CE, indicating that at least some parts of Europe were familiar with it by then. European colonizers introduced sorghum to the New World in the 16th century. And according to some sources, sorghum arrived to the American colonies via Guinea in the 17th century. We'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, Linnaeus first classified the genus sorghum in 1753, and it was further classified a few years later. The first known mention of sorghum in the U.S. was written by Benjamin Franklin um, when he described how sorghum was used in 1757 to make brooms. And yes, as we kind of mentioned at the top, sorghum's story in the U.S. mirrors that of sugarcane in a lot of ways. Yeah. While sorghum may have been present on a small scale prior, 17th century traders of enslaved peoples and the enslaved people themselves introduced sorghum more widely to the United States, perhaps partly through Guinea. Um, enslaved Africans used sorghum in a wide variety of things and in a variety of ways in foods like breads, puddings, and as a pulled candy or as a feed for chickens and the inedible fiber for things like brooms. It wasn't until the mid-1800s that Americans at large started to use sorghum syrup culinarily, and this was in part due to sugarcane. Um, So, okay, we've discussed before, but Americans have a real sweet tooth, and this is not Mm -hmm. a new thing. We have Mm -hmm. had one for a long time. Uh, Because of this, European Americans really loved sugarcane and used it in all kinds of things, from foods to drinks to medicines. 
However, the sugarcane industry relied on forced labor of enslaved peoples and perpetuated the industry of enslavement, so abolitionists boycotted it. The boycott gained momentum in the North as the Civil War loomed, and Northerners didn't want to support the Southern economy. On top of that, they knew that when war did break out, their supply of sugarcane would be cut off. Mm-hmm. So they turned to other sweeteners suited for cold weather like maple syrup and beet sugar, but sorghum got in the mix too. Okay, so now we're going to take a quick detour. Okay. But all will be illuminated. All right. Okay, I promise. Let's talk about France. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. Yes. yes. All right. In 1851, the Geographical Society of Paris requested that the French Council located in Shanghai send cuttings, seeds, and plants of sorghum that might be suited to growing in Europe. From this, the French horticulturists ended up planting only one seed, but it grew and multiplied, spurring experiments that got folks really pumped about sorghum. Uh, Because, I mean, we're not talking about this now, but they, France also had a lot of issues with sugar getting cut off and finding different sure. ways of sweeteners. So this was yeah, a big yeah. deal for them, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're not the only ones with a sweet tooth. No, no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. Um, and in fact, an excited French official wrote a letter that caught the attention of a U.S. patent officer located in France named J.D. Brown. An 1855 publication claimed that in part this letter read... I continue to think the plant is one of the most valuable which exist, that it will yield the greatest advantage not only in Europe, where the climate allows the late maize to grow to perfection, but in the tropics, where it may replace the sugarcane. So big deal. Um, Brown realized that the success of sorghum in Europe meant it might have success in parts of the U.S. that previously hadn't been able to grow it, like the North as well. In 1854, Brown returned to the U.S. with sorghum seeds, and a few years later, farmers received about 300 bushels of sorghum courtesy of the U.S. Patent Office. But this wasn't the only way sorghum's popularity as a food source and overall crop grew in the United States. On the flip side of this story, a British man named Leonard Ray transported sorghum seeds and or plants, I wasn't too clear on it, uh, from Mm -hmm. South Africa to New York in 1857. However, he gave the sorghum to Southerners, uh, where sorghum was quickly adopted and grown. U.S. nurserymen also helped spread sorghum seeds across the country, including William Robert Prince. Around about 1854, Prince received sorghum seeds that he planted at his family nursery in New York and distributed the seeds for other nurseries to do the same. The results were pretty good and not at all cumbersome when it came to production, which was a plus, uh, mm-hmm. particularly in regions like the Midwest. Henry Steele Olcott, also a nurseryman, did something similar and went on to publish his significant work in Sorgo Emphi, the Chinese and African sugar canes. Uh, and by the way, all these people have interesting stories. So if you want to learn more, check them out. We're going to shout out a source at the end. But yeah. it was one of the not few cases. This happens kind of frequently. But sometimes <laughs> we're like, you know, this episode's getting long. I've got to pick and choose where's the actual food part yeah. we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I could go on this tangent about this dude for another, like, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. But maybe maybe that's a different, maybe that's a whole different episode. Maybe that's a little side side dish for, for another day. Side dish? I like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, well, back to the sorghum syrup. Um, 
Yeah. Through all of these efforts, Northerners pretty much achieved what they wanted to uh, through all of this. Sorghum rose to become a replacement for sugar that was easy to produce at home, far cheaper than sugarcane. In places like rural Appalachia, it ended up in all kinds of things, from beer as a milk substitute and chicken feed. And in non-Southern regions, it contributed millions of dollars as a crop. Yeah, um, lots of lots of towns, uh, especially throughout Appalachia, but I think kind of anywhere that it was being grown as as a as a uh, sugar crop would have had a, a sorghum mill at somewhere within the town where farmers could bring their sorghum stalks for pressing, and nearby vats would be set up to slowly cook the juice down into syrup, um, stirred and skimmed continually. And in Appalachia specifically, this was like a like a popular early autumn community activity, sometimes called a stir-off, where (laughs) you would go and you would, like, kind of gossip and maybe, like, meet some cute people and, you know, get some socialization going, right? Okay. I like it. Mm -hmm. I like it. When the Civil War sent prices of sugarcane skyrocketing, sorghum um, only became more popular as an alternative. President Lincoln was a big fan and even brought sorghum up in one of his presidential debates. Uh, You can read the whole exchange. It's quite, it's not really what you would think it would be. But yes, uh, he brought it up. The Union Commissioner of Agriculture wrote in 1862, the new product of sorghum cane has established itself as one of the permanent crops of the country and it enabled the interior states to supply themselves with a home article of molasses, thereby keeping down the prices of other molasses from any great advance over former rates, which otherwise would have been a result of war. Of course, um, the Civil War cut production of sugarcane in the U.S. and Louisiana and cut off water trade routes into the South of stuff like sugarcane from the Caribbean, meaning that the South was also looking for alternate sources uh, of sweeteners. And uh, sorghum fit the bill. Uh, Southerners at the time wrote about it as being one of the pillars of the Confederacy. Right, and one of the Confederacy's prisoner of war camps was even called Camp Sorghum, Uh, The prisoners received meager rations, often including low-quality sorghum. So I think that's why. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's, it's, oh, oh, that was about to be a pun. It's it's sticky. It's really sticky uh, as a topic. I'm sorry. Uh, It's just the best word for it. That's, it's not my fault (laughs) um, that language exists like this. Uh, Because, like, like, production of anything in the South was so often done by enslaved peoples. And, of course, as we've talked about in in other episodes, uh, a lot of the time when you get into discussing something, a food product that became popular during the Civil War or um, during Reconstruction, you start to you, you, you see all of this written evidence from white people, mm-hmm. kind of taking credit for everything mm-hmm. and not mentioning the fact that they probably learned what they were doing from black people. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that seems very much to be the story here. Right. Yeah. Um, And after the war's end, uh, sorghum did see a lot of ups and downs in terms of popularity and production in the United States. And a lot of it did revolve around whatever was going on with sugar prices and production. Yeah, like sugarcane sugar. Right. So when things with sugar weren't looking great for whatever reason, sorghum uh, was proposed as the solution, often by government officials. 
Researchers dedicated their lives to it. There was a lot of funding thrown towards sorghum. Things were looking Mm -hmm. really great until they weren't. And (laughs) interest in sorghum dramatically dropped off. There are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, Firstly, the amount of sugar sorghum produced was less than what was expected. Secondly, appearance. Um, People had long loved the crystallized appearance of sugarcane sugar, and sorghum just didn't look as appetizing in their minds. And lastly, competition, especially with the sugar beet. Yeah, uh, technology during the 1890s uh, advanced to allow the refinement of, of good white crystal sugar from sugar beets. Uh, refining crystal sugar from sorghum is more expensive than either from cane or, um, or after that tech developed, from beets. Uh, sorghum syrup also suffered during Reconstruction from its association with wartime, as we've seen with other food products. People are like, oh man, that's what we ate out of necessity, don't want anything to do with it anymore. Right, right. Uh, but before all that, <laughs> uh, sorghum was grown here in the U.S. primarily as a sweetener, and it was once the most popular sweetener in the United States. Until Americans started to move to the semi-arid West, an environment that necessitated crops like sorghum. Uh, So that kind of was a boost. Uh, Moonshiners gave sorghum a boost during the Depression. Um, By the 1950s, 90% of sorghum grown in the U.S. was used for forage, however. Um, But yeah, whenever prices of sugar went up, interest in sorghum syrup saw a corresponding spike. So they're very, very related through all of this. Mm Mm-hmm. Americans introduced sorghum to Australia in the 1900s. And by the 1950s, it had become a substantial crop in Australia and also uh, South Africa. After American sorghum production was threatened by things like downy mildew, green bug, and athracnose. I hope I'm close on that one. In the 60s, breeders got to work creating hybrids uh, resistant to all those things. And through that, the crop survived and bounced back. Uh, In 2006, Anheuser-Busch launched Redbridge, the first nationally available sorghum beer, touting how it was an alternative for those allergic to wheat or gluten. It's also being investigated as a replacement for corn as a a human and or animal food in areas that are currently experiencing uh, warming and or drought due to climate change. Um, It's it's got like a like a smaller leaf to root ratio. And also this wax layer on its leaves that make it just really good at taking up and holding on to water. Um, it's like three times more drought resistant than corn. So, yeah, that's that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as promised, shout out to the website True Treats, run by historian Susan Benjamin. And their article, "The Triumphs, Defeats, and Ultimate Victory of the Sorghum Syrup." Um, it expounds on a lot of stuff we mentioned here that we had to whittle down. And it's really fascinating. Highly recommend checking it out. Uh, just so much stuff in there. Sometimes we're reading our, these articles and doing this research, and I'm thinking, how is this not a movie already or an HBO miniseries yeah. or something? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there were, I, I, I was telling Annie before we started recording that this is one of those topics that I felt like I could have just kept reading about for for days. There are so many, so many firsthand accounts um, of of this sudden boom in in sorghum syrup um, from like 1855 to like 1862. Um, it overnight became wildly widespread, um, and. Such an interesting story, and um, 
and such a like such a relatively rare product these days that um I really I really hope that that more more humans um in the United States get the chance to try uh try it as a grain as a flour um try sorghum syrup get your health if if, if you if you drink alcohol get yourself some baiju um <laughs> it's, it's so good <laughs> so it's so like funky and weird mm-hmm. and grassy and oh it's great ooh baiju episode in our future i think yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, with that recommendation, <laughs> in the meantime, I think that's what we have to say about sorghum syrup for now. It is. Uh, we do have some listener mail, though, for you. We do, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. (laughs) Give me museums. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. We're back with listener. Listener. (laughs) Syrup. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like all my syrup is, uh, because I use it so rarely, it crystallizes and it just, it looks at me through the bottle. (laughs) Like, 
You can you can like remelt it. You can like just put in like a water bath on the stove. A water bath and, for my and syrup. Melt, yeah, and just melt it back into bad you decrystallize it. Oh. Yeah. Usually that'll work. Okay. That's good. That's a new hope you've given me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Vivian wrote, finally got around to catching up on a few episodes while running some tedious experiments in lab. Very, (laughs) very much appreciate Saver for powering me through. I wanted to share with you the multifarious world of Taiwanese mangoes in case you hadn't come across it in your reading. Mangoes were first introduced there by the Dutch in the 17th century, and Taiwan currently produces an incredible selection of localized varieties. Yeah. Mm. The only one I've had the fortune to try is the Heixiang mango. Uh, hei, black, referring to its dark green skin, which persists even when it's ripe. Xiang, fragrant. Um, I tried it for the first time in Minnesota, a little after the prime season of July, August, and shipped all the way from Vietnam, where it's known simply as the Taiwan mango, and apparently incredibly popular, at least with the Vietnamese-American population in the Twin Cities. My first bite was a revelation. The flesh Mm. was succulent, or Q, as a Taiwanese blog called it, with a godly, almost floral aroma. People say it has a longan-like taste, which I personally didn't quite register. Surprisingly indispensable to the experience was the skin, which was aromatic itself and surpassingly crunchy. It's best when not Mm. quite ripe. When it's very ripe, the flesh is still sweet, but no longer has the floral tones and the skin becomes bitter. Here's a picture. Hard to tell, but they're massive as long as my head. I dug around the internet for some history and gleaned this from the Taiwanese wiki. Despite being around since the days of Japanese occupation, early 20th century, it only became commercially popular in recent years. It used to take two years to bear one crop of fruit, and only after many years of cultivation did farmers adapt it to the local environment. Uh, People were confused by its perpetually green skin, thinking it unripe and unfit to eat. However, most sources I found on the internet credit a farmer named Wang Chaokai for planting the first Heixiang mango in 2010. Really hope these get more accessible in the U.S. I love champagne mangoes, but there's so much more out there. May the force be with you. Would love to hear some reactions to the Kenobi TV show in a future episode. (laughs) You know, we almost did that for April Fool's. We almost just did a, like, non-food Star Wars (laughs) episode. Yeah, or just Annie and Lauren chatting about whatever it is that we chat about. Um, So, not outside the realm of possibility. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, also, right, thank you for, for writing in about eating mango skin. That was, oh, goodness, a, a couple of people wrote in on Twitter to be like, dude, you said that the skin of mangoes is inedible. It's not inedible. It's delicious. Uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so, uh, so good point. I've never done that, but I am curious to try it the next time a good mango season rolls around. Yes, and also I love... Um, all of these varieties, and I would very much like to try them because yeah. I, I do love oh, mango. Yeah. And this is something, as I'm reading it, I'm angry that I have not experienced. <laughs> I had a good friend from Taiwan in high school, and she would get me, uh, she would find me these fruits, and I can't remember the names of them. So it's possible that I had tried one, uh, but hmm. they were delicious, and I'm so oh. eager to try more <laughs> to expand my yeah. palate. 
Oh, always. Mm-hmm. Always. Oh, mangoes. So good. So good. Uh, Colleen wrote, Cast iron has been with me my entire life. Growing up, my mom used hers, and when I moved out, I got my own brand new pan, pot, uh, Dutch oven, uh, griddle, and lid. Those were not pre-seasoned and were a beautiful gray silver. It was before Google, and I only had the instructions that the manufacturer provided. That was the one and only time I ever seasoned. My mother never seasoned either. Cast iron has become something that is causing high levels of anxiety for others, but there's no need. Online cast iron instructions are all over the place and contradictory. This could be because it's complicated, but it's not. What it actually means is that cast iron care is whatever works. In other words, it doesn't matter. The few cases where it matters is with professional cooks, chefs, uh, people trying to sell something, and influencers fishing for views. And the person who wants to be able to slide a fried egg around a dry pan like it's in microgravity might want to do all that extra work. That is not me, and it's not necessary. Let's slow down and ponder for a minute. People have been cooking with iron since the Iron Age. Back then, people couldn't be picky about oil, and their cooking fire didn't have a digital display to show the temperature. They lived a simple life with their cast iron, and we can too. For cooking, I start by coating my cast iron in oil, whatever I'm cooking with. I then add a splash more of oil for the cooking. Iron heats and cools slower than stainless steel, so I set my burner to where I want it. Uh, Turning the burner too high does not save any time. I tried it once. I was going back and forth with turning the heat down, then back up and down again. It took an epoch. I ended up eating cereal while I cooked. The final product went straight into the fridge's leftovers. Cast iron is slower than stainless, but not too much. I wet my hands under the faucet, then flick the water drops into the pan. The water will pop and sizzle when the pan is ready. I add onions, sweet pepper, and garlic while it's warming. Most of the time it's ready before I have everything chopped. If the food isn't cooking fast enough, I turn up the burner. If it's too hot, I take it off the burner. If I'm actively cooking, not taking a nap, uh, the color, sounds, and smells tell me if I need to adjust the heat. The extra time it takes to heat makes it easy to make adjustments before anything gets burned. I only have trouble when toasting pine nuts. Uh, The pan is dry, so there's nothing to listen for. After cooking, the pan stays hot, so I don't wash it right away. I enjoy my food. Iron is porous, and it rusts, so don't ever soak it. Except if it's really bad, I fill it with hot soapy water to sit, but I don't leave it for too long. Uh, If I don't have the spoons to wash the pan that night, I did manage to cook after all, then I rinse it, shake off the water, and set it aside. It's just as easy to scrub a pot today as it is tomorrow. Who am I kidding? I've left that poor pan for weeks. Cleaning. I hate washing dishes. When I get around to it, I scrub in hot water with dish soap using a boar bristle brush and a bamboo scraper for tough spots. In the worst case, I've used a Brillo pad. Do they make those anymore? I haven't needed to do that since I was a kid washing my mom's pans. After cleaning, I show my cast iron some love. I let it dry overnight or longer. Then I coat it in oil and return it to the rack. The oil will partly soak in, partly dry, and some will drip off. I'll put it away a day or more later. When my cast iron was young, it would occasionally get a layer of rust, giving it a bronze hue. The rust came off with oil and a paper towel. If that wasn't enough, then I used oil and a pot scrubber. I've never had to, but I understand that bad cases may need sandpaper. I use my cast iron for everything. For many years, I only had a four-piece cast iron set, a pan, a pot, Dutch oven, the griddle and the lid, and one stainless pot until my sister gave me a stainless set. Uh... TLDR, don't worry about cast iron, keep it oiled, and don't put it in the sink. 
I love this. <laughs> I love this so much. <laughs> oh, oh, how lovely. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a it's like reclaiming the all of that worry that I poured into the episode at least. It's like <laughs> a nice little it's okay. It's gonna be okay. Yeah. <laughs> It is, it is, it is very forgiving. Um, I have seen like a completely wrecked cast iron pan be brought back from the brink. Um, so it, it's right. Like you don't, like, don't worry that hard. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're, this is good advice. This I is think good so. Advice. I think we're ending on a very hopeful note. I can save my syrup. Yeah. I can save my cast iron pan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just in general, like, keep it oiled. Don't put it in the sink. You'll be fine. Yes, yes. I also really enjoy that you were able to just have four pots, essentially, for for a long time. I've also been living that existence for a long time. It's pretty good. Oh, yeah. I use two, maybe three pans, pot pots and pans. Mm -hmm. Maybe, uh, no, four. Four. You're right, four. Yeah, sure. I think that's about, you know, that's about right for... You yeah. and I. Other people, not yeah. so much. <laughs> I have more, but I essentially only use, yeah, about three or four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a good, oh, goodness, a good Dutch oven can really take you places. Now, that's what I don't have, and I do want. Oh. Mm-hmm. <sighs> mm-hmm. Well, maybe one day, maybe one day we'll get a sponsor. <laughs> there you and go. Because there's no <laughs> other way I could do it otherwise. No. Never. <laughs> Well, thanks so much to these listeners for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening. And we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga! How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.